imagine you're the director of the lottery. You certify the machines. Then you say you pull the winning lottery ticket for $1 billion. That is what Brian Kemp did in this election. Hello and welcome to this episode of Who Belongs, a podcast from the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society at UC Berkeley. My name is Mark Abizade, one of the hosts of Who Belongs. This episode will be another installment of our Civic Engagement Narrative Change Project series, with project researcher Josh Clark interviewing two guests. The first is Robert Greenwald, an award-winning producer and director who has a new film coming out next week on September 25th called Suppressed, The Fight to Vote about voter suppression in the 2018 gubernatorial election in Georgia, and Carol Anderson, professor of African-American studies at Emory University and author of the book, One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. This was their conversation. Today we'll be talking about the film Suppressed, The Fight to Vote. The film investigates the issues of voter suppression and voting rights, especially in the state of Georgia, and in relation to the 2018 Georgia gubernatorial race, but also as we turn to the presidential election season of 2020. The film will premiere in Atlanta on September 24th, with full release on September 25th, and you'll be able to access it at www.fighttovote.org. So Robert, you founded Brave New Films uh, about 14 years ago, from what I understand, and you've directed documentaries on a wide range of topics. Um, You've taken on Walmart's business and labor practices, the political influence of large media conglomerates, war profiteering in Iraq in the George W. Bush years, and also U.S. drone policy under President Obama. What made Brave New Films decide that you all would devote yourselves to tackling the issue of voter suppression in Georgia? couple of reasons that came together to lead to the decision to take on voting suppression. One of the first was the absolutely brilliant and essential book that Professor Anderson has written, One Person, No Vote, which really served as a guide throughout the whole process in terms of the research, the explanation of how voting suppression works today, and it opened my eyes and all of my colleagues' eyes to a fundamentally different idea. It's not one person under cover of night sneaking in and stealing a ballot box or holding a gun to somebody. It's a whole series of different strategies and tactics, unfortunately, many of them legal, and the result is this widespread voter suppression. So reading Professor Anderson's book, seeing and understanding the variety of the different tactics. And then the amazing staff at Brave New Films, Laurie, our associate producer, and Casey, our producer, began the months of research in terms of finding the personal stories. What we do with Brave New Films and with film is we put a face on policy. And if we don't have the faces, then many other folks can do the policy. But what we uniquely do is the faces, which are useful and important in film, and allow us to tell a systematic 
systemic story, not a story of one corrupt person, not a story of one broken vote, voting booth, but a systemic effort to stop people from voting. So all of that came together and led to the decision that there was nothing more important that we could do than to take on this issue to the best of our ability. Yes, Professor Anderson's book, One Person, One Vote, or One Person, No Vote, excuse me, um, is is really a definitive history of voter suppression in the U.S., um, as well as uh, an analysis of some of the contemporary um, tactics of voter suppression. Uh, really, really an important book, um, and it's, you know, it's uh, awesome to hear the, the impact that this book had, um, that it really sort of drove this film into being in a way. Um, Professor Anderson, you speak in the film, um, in, in several parts of the film, and one really evocative uh, statement that you had um, was that voter suppression today is like termites in the house. And um, I wanted to give you an opportunity to spell out that metaphor for us and, and what you're meaning by that. I, and I, I use that metaphor because in so many ways, it looks like the house is standing. It looks like the house is solid. You, you walk in, there are walls, there's a floor, there's a roof, and you think, ah, oh, I've got a nice, solid home. And then if you want to do some remodeling, you pull off the wall, and all of a sudden you're looking at the studs, and they're, they're just sawdust. And you realize there's nothing really holding up your home. And soon, if you don't stop this massive um, destruction of the pillars of your home, it's going to collapse. That's how I see where we are with democracy right now, is that it looks like it functions. We see... um, candidates running. We have weekly and monthly polls telling us who's in front and who's behind. We have, um, on election day, we have cameras there talking about people are at the polls and they're voting, and now we have the returns coming in. It all looks like a nice, functioning democracy. But when you pull back the drywall, What you see are the ways that the policies of voter suppression are systematically destroying, eating away at the very pillars holding up the house of democracy. That's why um, that that analogy just really spoke to me. I, you know, I I wanted to mention, of course, that the gubernatorial race in Georgia in 2018 um, was one that you know, many people were watching that was historic for a number of different reasons, among others um, that uh, the Democratic candidate Stacey Abrams, um, if, if she'd been victorious, would have been the first uh, African-American woman governor in the country. Um, and also because, you know, Stacey Abrams is someone who has done more than most and arguably uh, in, in Georgia more than any um, to get folks registered and to really um, go around and bring more people into the process um, than have been in, in the democratic process and the electoral process uh, consistently in the state. Um, you know, in large part through the organization New Georgia Project, um, which she directed. So um, I, I wanted to give that as background to any, um, for any of our listeners that might not 
um, no, that, that piece of context. But I also wanted to ask, you know, before we dig in further into um, some of the questions about uh, particular tactics um, and how they functioned in Georgia and how they function across the country to suppress the vote, if the two of you could just give a brief overview, kind of naming some of the voter suppression tactics that we saw in Georgia in 2018 and that the film investigates, that suppressed investigates. Uh, we saw, for instance, massive voter roll purges. Um, 10.6% of Georgia's voter rolls, uh, registrants on vo- Georgia's voter rolls, were knocked off the list in 2018 alone. We also also saw um, poll closing. Hundreds of polls were closed, primarily in areas that vote heavily uh, Democratic and are primarily African-American communities. Uh, we have a gentleman who um, was in the military and says it was this was about absentee ballots, and he said it was easier to vote absentee from Iraq than it was to vote absentee in the United States. You know, and we have the exact match program. So what Georgia says is that it's easier to vote here than anywhere because we've got this kind of automatic voter registration. What Georgia doesn't tell you, um, it's like the asterisk that's right there, is that if your voter registration card doesn't match up exactly to what's in the state's database or the Social Security Office's database, then your voter registration is held in limbo. Um, and you don't quite know why there's a problem. It may be that there's a a space between your last name and it's not on the the state's uh, driver's license database. It may be that there is an accent, Renee, instead of Renee. Um, You don't know, but what you do know eventually, kind of, sort of, is that you registered to vote, but you're not registered to vote. Yes, and I think just to reiterate that, I mean, it, as the um, someone in the film talks about, this is particularly effective, if you will, because people assume once they're registered that they're registered, and that's not the case. The other tactic that got some attention, but fundamentally the the how widespread it was, the long lines. Well, you say long lines. What's the big deal? So. I want to ask everyone listening, how long would you wait online to vote? We have people, again, primarily in African-American districts, where they waited online an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours, and six hours, which requires not only extraordinary patience, but also in many cases missing work. And now to vote, it's costing you not just time, but it's costing you money. And as Dr. Anderson says, there's you know there's research about the longer the wait, the more people decide not to vote. And key to that is making sure that there aren't enough machines, voting machines, in those minority precincts. And this is part of what led to those 
those multi-hour lines. Um, in fact, over a thousand machines, voting machines, were in a warehouse on election day instead of being distributed as they should have been to uh, precincts that were in Fulton County, uh, which is Atlanta, in Cobb County, another part of Atlanta, and Gwinnett County, yet another part of Atlanta. Yeah, this this is really one of those issues that I feel like uh, the, the media, I mean, not to paint all of the media as, as one thing, but media generally um, does us a disservice in their coverage of long lines. I mean, uh, usually the reporting when there are long lines on election days is, look, this is a positive sign, high turnout. Um, I, I feel like I remember, you know, really, t- even since I was a kid, this kind of media narrative of, look, democracy is alive and well. Just look at these lines, you know, people standing in line waiting to vote. Everyone's here. Um, but that really, it, it, that is putting a sheen on what's kind of an administrative failure, isn't it, uh, Dr. Anderson? Oh, absolutely. Um, What the research is very clear on is that African-Americans in African-American districts and Hispanics in primarily Hispanic districts have to wait the longest to vote. The group that has the shortest wait time at the polls are whites who live in white districts. And so you get this disparate impact, and it has a, uh, a horrific effect on voter turnout, not only at uh, the day of the, the, the polls. When you're standing in line, imagine standing in line five to six hours. We don't like to wait 30 minutes at the driver's license bureau. <laughs> yeah, right. So imagine, right? <laughs> or, and, and so what, what happens here is that you're in line for six hours, and for many – Those are in working-class districts where you have to punch a clock. And if you can't punch that clock because you're standing in line trying to vote because there are three machines there instead of the 15 or 20 that should be there, or that they forgot to bring the electric cords, or the batteries ran down, uh, all of these excuses that are massive administrative failures that are designed to create these long lines, which are therefore designed to discourage voters in those districts from standing in line for five, six hours to cast their ballot. This is, again, the, the, the analogy of the termites, right? It looks like it's functioning. It's not. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I would also I would also add to that. I look at it, in fact, not as an administrative failure, but perhaps, sadly, an administrative success in terms of achieving a goal of voter suppression. <clears throat> Someone in the film talks about resource allocation, <clears throat> which is, you know, you decide where you put your resources. That's not an accident. That's not a mistake. That is working to make sure some get more of a right to vote than others. Robert, you talked earlier about putting faces on a system, right? Um, And, you know, this type of story of voter suppression and, you know, all the stories that are really compelling um, in the film that you've made is not, they're they're not usually well told post-election. They're not picked up um, for, you know, 
variety of reasons, I assume. Um, media move on to covering, you know, winners and losers, um, you know, a lot of uh, profiles of swing voters and so forth. Um, I wonder if you would say, since you um, have gone through this process as a filmmaker, um, is it difficult to find people impacted by suppressive laws and policies? I, I, I feel like that's an excuse um, that you might hear um, for why journalists don't do a better job of, of covering this. But, you know, did you find it difficult in the making of this film to, you know, get folks in the room to hear their stories? In, in, the, in this case, with the widespread suppression in Georgia, we did not find it difficult. What it did require was time and effort. And again, I tend to look at things in terms of the system. Many wonderful journalists who I know and some many who I don't know, I think would love to have the time to be able to spend as we did. You know, look, we're a very small nonprofit, but we had, you know, Laurie spent probably months and months just reaching out, talking to people, posting on social networks, following uh, up leads. Others could have done it, but they didn't, often because of the nature of their jobs, which are in a for-profit system. They have to turn around quicker. What can be a profit? But the number of stories that were out there was I mean, was really extraordinary. And all, you know, there are a whole series of lawsuits being uh, pursued now. And in those lawsuits, they have all numbers of people with different statements about how their vote was suppressed. Some, something that struck me about um, the stories that, uh, the, the impacted voters that you did find, the ones featured in, in the film Suppressed, was that by and large, they were highly engaged politically. So um, a lot of folks who were informed, committed, um, and we hear their stories of jumping through every hoop, um, you know, going over all of the obstacles that are put in their way and still not getting to vote. And, you know, that's a powerful bit of the film because uh, you get so frustrated <laughs> um, hearing these stories and going along on these journeys with folks. Um, but I think that why um, most people underestimate the impact of voter suppression is that it's usually more subtle as Professor Anderson was discussing. Um, and a lot of voters can manage maybe one or two of these kinds of inconveniences and, you know, not five or six. And then, you know, they, they um, don't vote and then and then we, you know, don't end up being able to hear about it. Um, you know, as a voter suppression expert, would you say that that's generally the case, Professor Anderson? I would say it is. And the reason it is, is and as a historian, I'm going to take us back to Mississippi in 1890. When Mississippi developed the Mississippi Plan, which was to figure out how do we stop black people from voting and get around the 15th Amendment, that the constitutional amendment on the right to vote, how do we do that? And they they developed an array of policies, uh, poll tax, uh, literacy tests, good character clause, etc. What they realized is that if one doesn't, one of those programs doesn't stop, the second one might. If the second one doesn't, the third one might. If the third one doesn't, the fourth one might. If the fourth one doesn't, the fifth one might. So by 1940, that combination of what was called the Mississippi Plan led to only 3% of African Americans being registered to vote in the South. But the images that we have of that are the images of the violence. 
so there are the policies, but then that's a, there's that election day terrorism, that kind of terrorism that led to the explosion on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma that led to the Voting Rights Act. That's how we think of voter suppression, the violence. So what happens if you strip the violence out, but you maintain and create an array of policies that are so effective in picking off a thousand here, 20 there, 30 there, 100 there? That's what we have right now. It's quiet, it's subtle, it's methodical, it's bureaucratic, and it's effective. And it's really hard for a nation and a media drawn to the bloodshed, drawn to the fire, drawn to the explosions, to really gather how corrosive and dangerous these policies really are, to be able to explain them legibly. That's why I love the film. I I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, I mean, what's so frustrating, I feel like, is I think there is this, um, you know, it's partially due to a faith in our electoral system and our our democracy that folks who aren't subject to, um, you know, voter suppression tactics to having all of these different hoops that they have to jump through, you know, kind of deny when they hear these cases, they deny that this could be widespread. Like, those are those are tiny exceptions is what they say. Um, And I think that what's you know when those stories do get told um in the media or in in films um like a film like suppressed um yeah those stories that are told are exceptional but not in the way that people are saying that um they're exceptional because these are folks who who did jump through every hoop and and they're really the tip of the iceberg you know one of the the narratives out there deals with how you know, it was one of the reasons I wrote I wrote One Person No Vote was after the 2016 election, there was the narrative that black people just didn't show up. Um, and so it was it built into that narrative of what I call black pathology. You know, they don't care about democracy. They just didn't show up. And it doesn't say that this is the first that was the first election in 50 years without the protection of the Voting Rights Act. And and so this narrative of of well you know this vote voting is is out there for everybody everybody has an ID everybody you know I I go vote and you know I don't stand in line I don't understand the problem if you really cared you would you would go vote and so a residential segregation allows to draw the districts in such a way so that. Many in the middle class norm and many whites don't feel the full impact of having to stand in line for six hours or having to get an ID where you don't have all of the documentation. So you have to go back multiple times to try to gather up all of the documents to prove you are who you are. So that is the the kind of subtle, corrosive way that it it shapes our electorate. It it shapes our our sense of everybody can do this. This is a fair and equal society when it in fact is not. Another example I feel like that goes along with uh, the general point you're making of a policy that on its face, like average voter who's not exposed to um, voter suppression uh, might not think sounds very pernicious is the exact match policy. Um, and, and I wanted for you to, to ask for you to spell out, um, you know, why, why is it that this has a disparate impact undeniably on communities of color? 
and the way that it works, so Exact Match says that everything that you have, particularly like your name, um, has to be exactly, that you put on your voter registration, has to be exactly that that's in the state's um, driver's license database or the Social Security Administration's database. What a lawsuit proved was that what that does is it privileges anglicized names. John Smith. If your name is Jose Garcia Marquez and you write it on your voter registration card with a hyphen between Garcia and Marquez, but there's not a hyphen on your driver's license in the driver's license database, then boom, kicked out of the, you're put in electoral limbo. What we know from the ways that names work, even the the um, is that when you don't have a an anglicized name, it's going to to be a lot easier to have that name kicked out. If you have an uncommon spelling of the name, that name is going to be kicked out. Those sorts of things happen so that in October of 2018. So this is just a month before the election. Brian Kemp, who was the Republican candidate for governor, who also stayed on as Secretary of State at the time to manage this election, he held in abeyance 53,000 voter registrations in October of 2018 because of exact match. Seventy percent of those withheld put in limbo were african-american that's how this works in the film i hope i'm not giving anything away by referencing this one um, particular incident but um there's a case of this uh this gentleman whose last name is del rio and um on on one of uh, either on the voter roll record or on the id del and rio have a space between them and on the other one there's no space um and so he gets held up uh, gets told that he's he's not in the voter rolls and has exact match explained to him. But um, something that was so interesting about this case was that he actually ends up getting to vote. And you learn that um, this is a person, I, I'm almost sure he's a professor, uh, definitely highly yes, educated. Yeah. Um, very educated, confident to, um, you know, speak back to the poll workers, right, and say, no, um, I have every right to vote, et cetera. Um, and, and they end up saying, okay. Uh, we'll let you vote, and um, this is this is one of those things. It's kind of uh, between the lines in the film. Um, you see, what you're seeing though is administrative discretion, um, and how that functions to privilege some and and exclude others as well. Um, do you feel like uh, like that plays a big role, Professor Anderson? Um, administrative discretion and how the folks who are actually there at the tables with with the roles are making calls in the moment, or is that is that one of those exceptional um, incidents? No, it's not exceptional, and it is in many ways it is traditional. Uh, when you look over the history of of disfranchisement in America, there was massive uh, authority for administrative discretion for the poll workers. So when it was the poll tax, if it was somebody they wanted to vote, then fine, they could vote. If it's somebody they didn't want to vote, they would stop them. Um, here what you saw was uh, Professor Del Rio. Actually, he is a physician 
and a professor at at Emory, um, able to use his his authority in ways that someone who punches a clock may not be able to to say, yes, I will vote. So you see embedded in voter suppression issues of race and class and also with the voter ID gender because women who marry or who divorce are often stopped from getting the the ID because there's a mismatch. So all of these things are embedded in there and it's a way again to begin to curtail the the electorate to shape it in such a way to basically have um, to give the aura of democracy, to give the aura of one person, one vote, when that is not what is going on on the ground at all. That point about discriminatory impact on on women of exact matches, uh, so important. And honestly, it's one that I haven't haven't heard um, articulated before. Um, Stacey Abrams, who I mentioned earlier, who is the uh, gubernatorial candidate, in Georgia is included um, in the film. There's a clip from an interview um, with Stacey Abrams. Robert, I wondered if your team approached Brian Kemp, who, as uh, Carol mentioned, Professor Anderson mentioned, is um, well, is now the sitting governor of Georgia and um, who presided over his election in his capacity as Secretary of State. Um, did you reach out for the film? multiple times to Kemp's office and did not receive an answer. We called, we emailed, we wrote letters, and there was no answer. And of course, I mean, think about it. If you were both the referee and the contestant, you would not want a lot of attention called to that fact alone of the dual role. And he played a dual role. And the fact uh, that he did it, that he was able to work voter suppression so that he got the election, um, I think is both outrageous, infuriating, and we hope with the film will be a wake-up call to other states all around the country where efforts are going on. Now, the good news is in some states, uh, the people who believe, hey, if you want to vote, you should be able to vote, are winning. I mean, hard to imagine we have to fight that battle after all these years. But the film is a call, and it's a call, a wake-up call, a call to action. And the good news is that it's available for free at fighttovote.org. So anybody can screen it. Anybody we have, it's going to be seen in thousands of schools, in houses of worship, in uh, libraries, in bookstores, in any place at your homes. So that I hope all the work that the team has put into it, that Dr. Anderson's put into this issue, uh, will have a real impact on people around a fundamental issue of democracy, which is voting. Yeah, I mean the the film is is incredibly powerful and really um, I felt you know even if you weren't sure what you thought about the role of voter suppression in Georgia's 2018 election before watching Suppressed, um, you almost can't walk away from the film um, thinking that Brian Kemp is anything other than the illegitimate governor of Georgia um, that that he shouldn't be there. I think one of the things that I'd like to say is to understand Brian Kemp's role because many people don't get what a secretary of state does, is to imagine you're the director of the lottery. You certify the machines. 
Then you say you pulled the winning lottery ticket for $1 billion. That is what Brian Kemp did in this election. A lottery director who pulls the winning lottery ticket. Who would you say it's most important that you know this group of people sees this film? It's a large group of people, and I think the maybe the most important will be people whose vote is in fact being suppressed. People who've been subjected to harassment, suppression, difficulties, closing polling places, waiting in line, perfect matches, absentee voting, provisional ballots, it goes on and on. It's those people who I hope will see it and the film will serve to stiffen their resolve to further activate them. And as we say at the end of the film, if your right to vote wasn't so important, they wouldn't try to stop you from using it. So those are the first line, if you will, and then it's everyone else who can do something, whether whether you screen it at your school or at your house of worship or at at your very own home. Nobody can sit on the sidelines here, and I hope the film will motivate people to say, yes, I can do something, and I will do something. Well, thank you so much, Robert Greenwald from Brave New Films, and thank you, Professor Carol Anderson uh, from Emory University for speaking with us today. This has been really great. I just want to say once again that the release date for Suppressed, the fight to vote, uh, is September... 25th, and you'll be able to access it for free, as Robert mentioned, at www.fighttovote.org. And um, thank you both very much for your work on this important issue. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Who Belongs with Joshua Clark, a researcher from the Haas Institute Civic Engagement Narrative Change Project, interviewing filmmaker Robert Greenwald about his new documentary coming out next week called Suppressed, The Fight to Vote. And Carol Anderson, professor of African-American studies at Emory University, who is the author of One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. To access a transcript of this interview and for more episodes of Who Belongs, visit us online at haasinstitute.berkeley.edu slash whobelongs. Thank you for listening. Thank you.